The technology that's driving advancements, like autonomous cars, can take years of research and development and millions of dollars of investment by a single company. That's why those secrets are protected like the Hope Diamond. On this edition of AutoLine This Week, our panel of experts talk about the strategy of protecting today's industrial secrets. And now, here's your host, John McElroy. I want to thank you all for joining us on AutoLine this week. You know, the automotive industry is going through enormous technological change right now. What with the race for electrification, autonomous cars, and mobility services. But there's also a lot of fights developing behind the scenes over the patents, the trade secrets, and the intellectual property that backs up that technology. And that's what today's discussion is all about. I've got three terrific panelists joining us for this discussion including Carla Bela, who is the CEO for the Center of Automotive Research in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Jim Cleland is the co-chair of the automotive group at the law firm Brinks, Gilson & Leone. And Sam Abulsamid is a senior researcher at Navigant Research. Great to have all three of you here today for this discussion. Jim, let me talk with you. Uh, do you see a growing pattern of litigation over all this new technology? And if so, what is causing it? Yeah, I, 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 think, I, th I think you do see an increase in litigation in IP in the automotive sector. I think patents have been a known commodity for quite, quite some time. They still remain a critical piece of a company's portfolio. But what you're seeing in the last five to seven years is an increase in the, the, the number of highly publicized trade secret disputes where many times somebody is leaving one company, joining a competitor, and a, a fight ensues because they have taken with them a large value piece of technology related to autonomy, related to electric vehicles, related to the cutting edge in automotive, and the, the as you said, the race to be first here in this space is, is so ferocious right now these trade secrets are, have an enormous value. Okay, you're the lawyer sitting here at the table. Uh, what's the difference between a patent and a trade secret? Yeah, so a, a patent is, is an is a IP vehicle where you basically tell the world what you've done and you get uh, a certain term of protection 20 years from the date you file it with the patent office. A trade secret, you keep quiet. You keep behind the scenes, and you protect it internally with your own measures. So in one, you're shouting to the world. The other, you're keeping it behind the curtain. Mm -hmm. Carla, i got to believe that being first to market is critically important. What's the advantage of maybe being the first to the market with an autonomous car? Well, I think everybody right now is really looking for their secret sauce. What is going to make their business model better than the, better than the competitors? And being first to the market, I mean, it clearly gives you so many advantages. Of course, there's risk that goes along with that. But the advantages of being first to market, you get almost the naming rights for what, whatever that particular you know, part, of the, part of the product is that you're developing. So once you've done it, then everybody else is playing catch up. So you're always looking, every new product that you develop, you want to be first in the market to say, I have the best fuel economy or I have the best infotainment system, et cetera. And Sam, uh, we just saw this big lawsuit between Waymo, you know, which used mm -hmm. to be part of, uh, or called Google, it is still part of Google, and Uber. Big fight going on there. What, what do you think uh, came out of this lawsuit? Uh, I think 
what it mostly what it demonstrated is that uh, Waymo is very serious about protecting whatever IP it has around automated vehicles. Um, you know, clearly, you know, as a company, Google traditionally has not been um, that forceful in terms of going after, you know, doing filing patent lawsuits against other companies. They've often been on the receiving end of those. Uh, from from a wide variety of companies, but they haven't necessarily been very aggressive in going after other companies. And so this was kind of an unusual case for them, but because they're moving into this new territory of automated driving, I think, and particularly because at least what was alleged of what Anthony Lewandowski, the, the Google engineer that left and, and went to Uber, um, stealing 14,000 technical documents, um, they, they really wanted to um, set an example of him saying, look, you cannot do this. And it's, it, it, California is kind of an interesting case because, as we were talking about earlier, um, you can't enforce non-compete agreements in California. So there's nothing to stop people like Lewandowski or, uh, and we've seen this with a lot of people in this autonomous vehicle space, moving around between different companies. Uh, so they, to the degree that they can protect their trade secrets and their patents, um, companies like Waymo and, and others, I think, are going to move aggressively to try to enforce that. Speak, uh, Jim, how do you uh, deal with this, though? I mean, as uh, Sam just pointed out, Anthony Lewandowski is accused of having walked out the door with all kinds of documentation. And I can understand how it's hard to enforce a non-compete clause that, that uh, Sam just mentioned. If you're walking out with something, it's in your head. But when you're walking out with all kinds of material, how do you, how do you defend that? Yeah, I, if you're if you're Mr. Lewandowski, I don't think you can. Uh, in that particular case, the he had actually met with the folks from Uber before he resigned from Waymo, which which makes that an easier case than most. Um, and even though that case just settled for in the range of two hundred and fifty million dollars, it was a it was a stock per, stock uh, uh, giveaway basically. He's still being criminally prosecuted right now uh, by the Department of Justice. What you do if you are Waymo in that situation is you hire a forensics team and you go in and you get your forensic evidence. And in this case, they did exactly that and they had some excellent, excellent evidence against Mr. Lewandowski and ultimately against Uber who had been a, a, a very willing partner in this, in this kind of marriage because and, and Sam referenced this earlier. Uber was behind. It, they needed to catch up. They wanted this LiDAR technology that is so critical right now for, for vehicle sensors that's going to, you know, as you move into the autonomy, these LiDAR sensors are one of the, are one of the, the bellwether technologies that they needed to catch up. Mm -hmm. Carla, you got a great amount of background working at car, a car company. Uh, what did you guys do when uh, you were at Nissan? There must have been some way that you tried to protect trade secrets from walking out the door. There were lots of ways. I mean, obviously, when you employ somebody the first time, there's clearly documents that they have to sign that they're going to keep what they learn. You know, it's, it's the company's property. The IP, that any IP that's generated, even any patents that are generated belong to the company and not the individual. And that's made crystal clear in the very beginning. 
But then, as we began to create more of an electronic footprint, as we saw more and more legal cases coming into, the, into play, then we began to categorize all of our different documents of information from one to four. And one had a very specific distribution in life, all the way down to four, which we basically got rid of on a, on a yearly basis. And that's both paper and electronic footprint, because with today's electronic tracking, almost it never goes away. So this, this is what you know, companies really need to watch from both sides to be able to protect their IP as well as you know, to be able to prove that they didn't um, disrupt or take anyone else's IP. I'd be reticent if I didn't bring up talent and the war on talent because right now we are all trying to fill spots where today we just don't have enough uh, human, human power be it cybersecurity, be it uh, uh, machine learning or artificial intelligence, there's only so much talent going around and that talent is circulating. So how to protect then what that talent produces in one company when they go to the next, either with non-competes or some clarity into that electronic footprint, it, it's gonna become more difficult. And I think companies are gonna have to really stand up and start taking a look at when somebody announces they're leaving, what kinds of due diligence needs to be done on their computer, et cetera. And they can do it to see if they copied and pasted or what they put on a hard drive that they're taking with them. To, to what Carla just said about talent, in fact, uh, there was just a story published the other day, a uh, report, I think uh, there, someone estimated that for particularly in the area of artificial intelligence, which is a key component of, of uh, developing these autonomous systems, uh, they estimated that there's only about 22, 23,000 engineers globally that really have the kind of in-depth knowledge of AI that's going to be necessary to make these systems successful. And I, mean, I think that may be, you know, a very conservative estimate. You know, I think there's probably a lot more engineers that have enough knowledge to be useful. But that's you know, when you're looking at the entire world, that's still a very limited pool of talent that everybody's fighting for. And, you know, there are estimates that in California, in, in Silicon Valley, um, AI engineers that are that have this kind of expertise are commanding salaries of anywhere from two hundred and fifty to five hundred thousand dollars a year, which you know when I left engineering ten years ago would have been a phenomenal amount for a base you know a, a working level engineer to be able to command that kind of salary. And Sam, if I can throw it back to something Carla said, because I think she said something really important. She said not only do you have to kind of take care of your own house, but you need to watch what's coming into your house. Yeah because probably the best thing you can do to guard against the situation that Uber finds themselves, found themselves in, that other companies find themselves in, is to, to, to screen what comes in. Because if you're going out and you're hiring a key employee from a competitor, you, you, you better do your diligence to make sure that the, the, the trade secrets and confidential information from another company doesn't, doesn't cross How do you do the that? Lines. What advice would you give a company in doing that? I like, I like the idea of when somebody walks into a company, you go through a, a process, an interview process, aside and apart from just identifying them as the best for the job. It involves identifying exactly what information they have in their possession, exactly what they worked on when they were with their prior company, and I like the idea of reps and warranties. That person <clears throat> entering the company is representing that they are not bringing any confidential or trade secret information with them when they, when they start their new job. So you have a writing there that you can fall back on. 
Okay, well that's great when you're being brave and noble and just trying to hire somebody because you need the talent. I got the feeling that Uber deliberately went after Lewandowski because they wanted him to walk out the door with all this knowledge. I, I think that's, I think that's, that's the allegation. That's probably not an unreasonable uh, <laughs> assumption <laughs> about what happened. But I think there are risk management processes in most organizations that should help to prevent this. That, I think, is a very unique case. There's going to be a risk attorney somewhere in another organization that would, you know, have, have said, you shouldn't be doing what you're doing. Now, sometimes, yeah, we don't listen to our lawyers and business rules, but, you know, you have to have a risk group that's constantly looking at those situations. Man, this has got to be so complicated for companies. All they want to do is hire somebody. And we know there's a talent shortage in the industry. This has got to add another layer of difficulty. Uh, on, on the other hand, you know, um, have, e even if, if you hire somebody in that um, isn't bringing in any, any documents with them, the knowledge that they have is vitally, can be vitally important, not only uh, because of the ability to do the job that you're hiring them for, but also, you know, if they, if they have knowledge of what, their comp what a competing company is doing, uh, and there's IP around that, whether it's trade secrets or, um, or patents, even if they don't specifically share that information, uh, they, can, they can use that, that knowledge, especially around trade secrets, to help them develop workarounds for, in their new role, you know, to say, okay, I know Waymo is doing it this way, so we, and they have trade secrets filed on this, and we can't do that. So let's do it a different way. So that, that so you can save be a bunch of time and maybe save yourself some litigation. Yeah, absolutely, down the road. So, I mean, it's, it's a double-edged sword, you know. So, you know, bringing somebody in, you know, you run the risk of, you know, getting yourself into litigation later on, but you, you, it can also be helpful to help avoid it later on if you do it the right way. Mm -hmm. Jim, we've also seen some instances in uh, the automotive industry where engineers, learned stuff here in the U.S. at U.S. automotive companies, then went to some other country and divulged the information there. Is, is, isn't that an increasing trend? Yeah, I, I think you have seen that in the last five to seven years. Ford was involved in a case like that where an engineer took trade secrets from Ford uh, over to China. Uh, the GM was involved in a case like that where an engineer took <coughs> trade secrets over to China to, to Cherry Automotive. One was involving hybrid vehicle technology. The other was, was relating to engine subsystems. But in each case, these trade secrets were valued at $40 million, $50 million, $100 million. And in each case, the person who ultimately stole the trade secrets attempted to come back in the U.S. and were criminally prosecuted under several different laws. So it's a, it's a risky business, a high-stakes business, but apparently... The, the 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 value of the trade secrets makes it makes it the, the gamble worth it for some people, uh, not for me, but that's a, it's a high stakes gamble. Yeah, and I think when companies also are looking at partnering with others, be it on a global level or even you know when you're having that negotiation process. I think it's important to have somebody legally in the room so you make sure you're not sharing things that then eventually will get transmitted to that company if the deal goes south or something like that. To always make sure that those people doing those negoti negotiations understand there are limits to what they should be sharing. Um, it, because if you share it openly, 
it's gone. And this, you this don't is something, have any, any recompense. Yeah, and, and this is something we're seeing a lot more of, you know, with this scramble to try to find the right talent. We're seeing a lot of companies, uh, OEMs, suppliers, and, and startups increasingly partnering in, in various ways. Uh, you know, for example, we have a partnership between BMW, Intel, Mobileye, and, and more recently Fiat Chrysler to develop automated driving systems. Bosch is partnering with Daimler. Uh, and, and you've got uh, Aurora, uh, a startup uh, founded by uh, Chris Ermson, who led the, the Google self-driving project for many years, uh, along with Sterling Anderson, formerly of, of uh, Tesla. And they're working with Volkswagen and Hyundai and Baidu on, on separate tracks. You know, so with all of these partnerships going on, you know, with companies working together to collaborate, to share, share the knowledge they have, what Carla was saying about uh, being careful about what you share is going to be crucially important. Yeah, and I, I loved the point that Carla made in another sense, too, because you know, she mentioned the fleeting nature of a trade secret. Once it's disclosed, you can never get it back which is why people love patents, of course, because you have a set term. That's why it's so important to use non-disclosure agreements, employment mm -hmm. agreements, exactly. contracts, because there you've got a writing, and you can always fall back on that writing. Once that trade secret is gone, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's in the public's eye, and you can never get it back. Do you see the patent process ever getting faster? Because right now it takes so long that by the time you actually get a patent, that technology could have evolved so much or changed. Do you see something different happening to offer you more protection faster? Carla, I think the patent office has been talking about uh, improving the speed uh, at which patents are granted nearly every year. <laughs> and I'm talking going back 20 years. Uh, there have been some improvements made but they, they certainly are not enough, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. uh, it still takes uh, upwards of two or three years in some technologies right, right. to get a patent. I, that's probably was your experience yes. in industry. And uh, the, 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 the system does need to be reformed, uh, no question about it. I think we all hope that the person who now is in charge of the patent office will make great strides to, to do that. I, I'm not, my fingers are not, are, are not necessarily crossed, but uh, I, I hope uh, so. On the other is, hand, is it a, wait, 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 wait. Is it a matter of reforming the patent office or just giving them a bigger budget and hiring more people to go through these uh, patents? I, I think, John, that's one way to do it. Um, the other way is to impose stricter timelines on the examiners. Um, there, there have been shortages of examiners over the course of the past, uh, you know, 10 to, 10 to 15 years, particularly in electronic arts and internet arts. Um, so th there, <laughs> there are a lot of different solutions that have been tossed around. None have been terribly effective yet, but throwing more people at it is, is one way to speed the process up, no question. Well, uh, I mean, it may speed the process up, though, but it may not necessarily be for the better, just throwing more people at it, because if the, if the examiners that are looking at these patents don't actually understand what's being claimed, then you, you end up getting a lot of patents granted that probably shouldn't have been granted. And we've seen a lot of that over the last 20 years, especially in the internet arena, where you know, there's, a, there's been a lot of bad patents, a lot of very vague patents, overly broad patents, and you know, things that were clearly obvious that never should have been granted in the first place. So you have to strike that balance between speeding up the process, but also making sure that the people that are examining the patents actually have some expertise in that area and understand what it is that they're reading, um, and, and, and they're granting things that truly are innovations. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I think it's really interesting to compare that to standards in, in automotive vehicle development. When we're talking about now creating standards for autonomous connected vehicles, the typical process can also take two to three years with consensus to actually officially you know, issue a standard. So now we're talking about maybe we should just have some guidelines or something because the process itself can't change itself fast enough to keep up with what's really happening in the marketplace. Yeah. So I, I don't know how patents can change, but maybe they shouldn't be called a patent, but something else. But we won't solve that in this 30-minute segment, I suppose. <laughs> I, I think the fascinating question, Carla, to that point is, okay, you have all of this data that's going to exist yeah. when, when we exist in an autonomous world. You've got vehicles talking to other vehicles. You've got vehicles talking to virtually anything, frankly. Who's going to own that data? And how are they going to protect yeah, that data? It, you know, is it, are they going to try to uh, maintain that data as a trade secret? Because you can't really patent data. Or uh, is it good, are, are you going to see a standard? Does the government step in, set a standard, and make everything regulated? Yeah. Uh, I, think, I think it's a it's a really interesting question. Yeah, Sam, what do you forward. think? Because as, as you know, uh, I think it was McKinsey came out with a study that said the monetization of data in cars could be a $750 billion a year business by 2030, which in automotive terms is just a hop, skip, and a jump away. What do you think is going to, who's, as Jim says, who's going to have Who's going to own the data or at least control access to it? Well, I, I think whoever provides the services, um, whether it be you know, ride-hailing services or various other services built on top of uh, the connected vehicle, will probably at least try to claim ownership of that data. Who should own that data um, is another story entirely. I mean, that probably, you know, personally, I think you know, the, whoever um, generated that data should probably be the owner of that data. Um, and this, you know, this is a question that I think we need to have a lot more conversation about because what we've seen certainly over the last several years is that a lot of companies that have, that at least control, if not necessarily own the data, have not necessarily been very good stewards of that data. And they haven't protected it very well from being uh, stolen and abused. And I, I, I have a feeling that uh, going forward, as we generate more and more data from vehicles and, and people become more reliant on connected vehicles and auto automated vehicles, um, and there's information about what they're doing that's associated with those vehicles and services, there may, we may start to see a backlash against the technology, and there's so many potential societal benefits of this technology, we have to be very careful about how we move forward with this in order to avoid a backlash that could prevent us from getting those gains in terms of safety and reducing congestion and improving air quality. Jim, this is something, I guess, that's just going to be negotiated amongst automakers, their suppliers, the transportation providers and the like, because you, as you pointed out, you can't patent this. There is no trade secret and unless it's behind what you can actually do with the data. Yeah, I mean, the software that's going to ultimately, you know, drive how a, run how a vehicle, you know, operates is, is going to be critical. And that will be maintained as a, as a trade secret. Each company has their magical potion uh, that, that they're not going to share. But, but, but it's just the thought of, you know, say an F-150, you know, driving up next to a, you know, to a, to a Ram and they're talking to each other. 
Uh, so Ford data is going uh, to the RAM. They're electronically uh, talking yeah, to so, each other. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, is, does, does Ford say that the data that it sends to the, to, to the truck sitting next to it is its data? And what happens when it enters the, the ECU of the, of the RAM? I, it's, it's, it's fascinating and, to and, me. And not <laughs> only that, it's transmitting to traffic signals. It's transmitting to all the, the, the cellular towers. Who owns that data? Who's managing? I know jurisdictions would like to have that data and say they own it. You know, they can actually think about ways to monetize that, that data that, that their city is becoming, you know, more smart, less congested, easier to park. Yeah. And, so, and the data from, you know, from these ride-hailing services about where vehicles are being used, where people are traveling, you know, I know cities would love to have access to that data you know, to help them in terms of their planning for infrastructure. You know, where, where do we need to put roads? Where do we need to set up, pick up, and drop off zones? And you know, of course, the, the companies providing these services don't necessarily want to share that data for free. So you know, everybody's going to want to get their, their take, you know, their, their slice of the yeah, revenue. Including me. Yeah. <laughs> so, Jim, we're getting down towards the end here, but where do you see all this going? I mean, we're just in the very beginning of this move to electrification, autonomy, mobility, and the like. As Carla just pointed out, that the technology is changing so fast, advancing so rapidly, we can't even write rules and regulations because they'll be obsolete before they're even written. What advice do you have to automakers and suppliers, especially as we enter this this new phase of this explosion of a technology? Yeah, I think I think the the message is is guard your technologies carefully in terms of the the outwardly facing technologies that you see in a vehicle. Guard your software like it is the, the you know the, the crown jewel, and think about a way that you can can share data. Because ultimately, there's got to be a way to get that done, and in order to make this work, mm -hmm. and you know, like you said, there's so much regulation that we, we still are going to see. Uh, I mean, it's just at the at the very beginning, and I, I think that that will help. But where that goes, we don't know. But it is just so critical to protect what you've got uh, right now. Carla, your closing thoughts, 20 seconds to what would your advice be? My advice is make sure you have very robust processes and, and procedures and that you follow those religiously and monitor those through a risk management system in your company. Sam, your checklist? Uh, conversations like this need to keep going on and expanding you know, so that we can try to come to some kind of consensus as to how we're going to deal with all of these problems. Very interesting. Boy, there's a lot to learn in all this, and I'm sure we're going to have to have another show at some point <laughs> to come back and see what's still going on. But I want to thank all of three of you. Carla Balo with the Center for Automotive Research, Jim Cleland with Brinks Gilson Leone, Sam Abulsamid with Navigant Research. Thanks for sharing all your thoughts on this very important topic. Thanks, John. And of course, I have to thank all of you for having tuned in.